Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Ling Fung Le, a doctoral researcher at the Institute for Media Studies, KU Leuven University in Belgium. Welcome to our podcast today. We have Miriam Le and Francisca Nicolaisen. Miriam is a PhD candidate in Southeast Asian Studies, while Francisca works as a research assistant for the Chair of Development Politics. These two wonderful academics we have with us today share a few things in common. They both teach and work at the University of Passau in Germany and research on social issues in Southeast Asia, particularly Vietnam. Miriam and Francisca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We are really looking forward to the podcast and joining you today. Recently, you published a chapter in an edited book about citizenship in Vietnam. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick overview of the work? Yes, sure. Thank you. So the idea for this work started with an edited book on citizenship by Berenschot, Schulte, Nordholt and Baker. So the contributions in this book discussed citizenship from a Southeast Asian perspective. And they used examples from Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, Cambodia and Malaysia. But they didn't use Vietnam as an example. And as we had been working on Vietnam before, we thought the framework in this book might also be useful for Vietnam. And we start our work in the chapter by looking at everyday practices of state society conflicts like uh, land rights and workers' rights and the conflict with China and environmental protests. In these conflicts, we find that citizenship is continuously negotiated. And we argue that citizenship is imagined as a cooperative partnership between state and citizens to build a civilized society together. And this partnership demands support for the nation building project as citizens are called to provide legitimacy to the state. At the same time, it also provides a means to demand accountability and regime responsiveness, as seen in the case of these protests, where local people regularly criticized the state and demanded their rights to be respected. So we have this sort of double function as a means of accountability and a means of affirmation of the state. And this, we argue, creates a dynamic process of negotiation of the relationship between citizen and state. We go further in saying that these negotiations are still rooted in a cooperative approach, reaffirming the state. So they're still using state symbols and not challenging the political system directly and still demanding the state's help and support. And we also argue that they are localized and exclusive and they seldom engage people at the national level. We find that this leads to a fragmentation where there is a little cross-class solidarity between different groups of society. We thus speak of a fragmented citizenship, and we argue that this cooperative, exclusive, fragmented and localized form of citizenship results in a conflicted citizenship, which is characterized by ambivalent loyalties and often expressed through conflict. 
And finally, we also found looking at these different social movements that in recent protests, the citizenship moved towards a more inclusive citizenship where people got engaged beyond their direct peer group, uh, for example, in the case of the marine life disaster in 2016. Wow. Very impressive work. And Vietnam is absolutely a very, very interesting case study. It is developing very fast at the moment, and its economic growth hasn't slowed down in recent years, according to World Bank, and especially even during the COVID-19 pandemic. But I do know that the transparency in the legal system and how to voice grievance among the common people does not necessarily grow at the same rate. So were this contradiction the reason that compelled you both to conduct the research or is it something else that compelled you to do so? I would say, yeah, yes, these contradictions between the political economic success of the growing global role and so on, on the one hand, and it's very ambiguous political regime is part of the motivation to look into especially state society relations more in depth and are kind of motivating our work. But I think especially as from our European perspective, as European researchers on Vietnam, we also think that Vietnam is often painted very one-dimensional, especially when concerning the political regime and the state-society relations. We talk about the Vietnam War, which is mostly from a US-American perspective, um, when Vietnam is described as authoritarian and socialist without really having a meaning to these terms. And then recently we have this, oh, success story. Vietnam has all these economic growth. It's very successful. But there's not much beyond this kind of terms. So that is one side. But when you look at Vietnam in depth, you see that it's a country with a very long and complex history. And a lot of this history has an influence on the realities we find right now in the 21st century. And when we, for example, take the term authoritarian, which is often addressed to Vietnam, for example, in the context of the corona pandemic, what does this really mean? We don't really have understanding of what does it mean in the context of Vietnam. It's easy, like the state is repressive. These are very simple terms. And so we think there's a very big difference between the existing images in media in the political discourse in the West on Vietnam. And at the same time, there is kind of practices and on these state of society relations, which produce realities which are not really represented in these images. So um, we would say that state society relations in Vietnam are more complicated and ambiguous than what we see in the media, for example. And we want to try to understand what does it really mean for the people in the country to live in an authoritarian state. And we think that the people in Vietnam do not exist in a vacuum. They are not passive. They have agency, even existing in a certain political or legal system like the authoritarian, whatever socialist country in Vietnam, common people still make decisions. They still develop strategies in their everyday life to deal with what's happening, what's going on around them. And I think that is the biggest basic point of our work, where we try to put everything together. Wow. I love how you use the common daily lives of the people as a motivation for your work, because I really think is how academia can relate to the common people's lives, especially in a state like in Vietnam. Just quickly about your work. In your work, you mentioned about the notion of citizenship in Western practice and also in the Vietnamese context. Can you tell us more about these two practices and how the concept differs from each other? 
yes, we can try and hope to make it understandable because it's kind of a difficult conceptualization. The difference of citizenship is kind of rooted in the difference between image and practices of the state. I think it's a very adept picture for useful concept for Vietnam. On one hand, images is what the state projects to be and practice is what happens in the everyday life and state society interaction. And in the Western context, at least in Europe, so I would go from Europe now, image and practice are often very close. So there's little space of maneuvering for people in everyday life. When we engage with the state, um, rules and practices are fixed and we know what to expect. If we want something, we know where to go, what to demand, what kind of form to fill in. And roles are clearly defined and there are expectations toward the state what he should do. Um, he should deliver certain things and we hold, thereby hold the state accountable. And this is often based on a formal written code. And so I would say citizenship in a Western context, going away from all the theoretical framing, it's very formalized often. It's right-based and it's independent of a personal context. So that's for Europe. I would say it for Europe and not discussing North America right now. In Vietnam, these images of the state and the practices we find can differ widely. They can be very close in certain cases, but they can be very different in others. On one hand, state society relations are formalized, but they can be in practice very informal. And we can find a difference between the formal idealized version of citizenship, what we called before the cooperative citizenship, and the practice of citizenship in everyday life, which we then call conflicted citizenship. So what we said before, in the context of cooperative citizenship, the state and social actors work together, they build this modern civilized citizenship, and the citizens are morally obliged to support the state and its nation-building project. So those who cannot support these efforts, they are often casted aside, they are marginalized or morally criticized. We could see this, for example, during the corona pandemic once again. So personal rights are not based on a written code, but they are derived from obligations toward the nation and what we do and the practices. So they can, even if you formally are citizens, like for example in the case of um, ethnic minorities, you often in practice these written acceptance of your right cannot be found in practice. On a positive side, the cooperative approach can lead to a larger um, community or larger solidarity in the community. We could see this with the corona response in the first year year where the call to cooperative citizenship were very broadly found and people were trying to support each other. For example, also during community efforts to support marginalized or poorer families. But beyond this idealized form of citizenship, there's a second level, the practice level, which we call conflicted citizenship. And their personal relations, local protests, social media plays a very strong role in how to define the relationship with the state. So at this level, the state is at the same time challenged. We can find that rights are negotiated, they are not fixed, they are negotiated, and people are reaffirming the state. And this can be a very positive space because it provides more space of maneuvering. People can adapt more to their interests, to their needs. It can be very positive oriented towards reform. And we could see this in all these conflicts where people demanded more transparency, better environmental protection, respect for land rights, and so on. It's not really against the system in itself. It can have negative impacts, for example, for minorities and people like democracy activists, which go against the system and not only demand reforms, who then are pushed out of the system and not not really listened to. So I would say the citizenship is also based on this separation between 
images and practices. And one of the biggest problems for people is that the expectations for citizens are not fixed. They can shift. And so status society relations, citizenship in itself is located in a kind of a gray zone, which makes the position of citizens in the state more vulnerable. A very good example for this vulnerability is the work of journalists, where they can write all kinds of stuff. They can criticize the state, for example, when it's about land rights. But the moment they cross an invisible line, they don't know beforehand, the state says like, no, not further. Now you, you step beyond this and then you get problems. You, you lose your job or whatever happens afterwards. So this kind of shifting. So citizenship is not fixed. The expectations are not fixed, contrary to what we find in the West. And I think they are much more rooted in practices and everyday negotiations than they are in the West in our context. And I think that's just how it is. <laughs> That is a very interesting take on the citizenship in Vietnam. And we know that Vietnam is a very particular case of a socialist communist state, but it has a market-oriented economy. In your research, you also explored how the people negotiate their rights with not only the state, but also other stakeholders, such as the urban developers through different channels and means. Can you elaborate on that and also give some more concrete examples to our listeners who might or might not be familiar with the recent events in the country? One of the more recent and larger conflicts that we mentioned in the paper is the 2016 marine life disaster. So what happened was in 2016, the Taiwanese company Formosa which was located in Ha Ding province in central Vietnam. They dumped their untreated industrial wastewater into the ocean, which caused pollution and a lot of fish were killed, which threatened the livelihood of local fishermen, especially. And this actually led to large scale online and offline protests. And the opposition was very widespread. Interestingly, also across uh, different groups of society, for example, local farmers and fishers protested, but the urban middle class um, and academics in the main urban centers uh, protested as well. So there were different petitions and workshops to actually engage the state. So not only go into confrontation, but also engage the state and start a discourse. And also this was one of the main conflicts that social media really played a role in organizing and mobilizing people. So it was a very visible protest, uh, both in the press, in the online media, and also on the ground. And interestingly, the visibility also in the Taiwanese press, I have to say, led to the Vietnamese state actually recognizing the responsibility of Formosa and demanding compensation to be paid. So while online debates are often curtailed and especially prominent activists, so well-known names are stopped from attending protests or are arrested in cases, uh, public pressure and online visibility has in the past led the Vietnamese government to meet some of the public demands and actually implement policy changes. So that was also the case with the uh, special economic zones by China. So this marine life disaster conflict is one example of the different actors and strategies and narratives that we have identified as common denominators in recent social movements in Vietnam, or better as categories under which these can be discussed and analyzed. So we found two possible groups that often take part in these social movements, which is one, the urban middle class and educated elites, and then also the marginalized working class, local farmers and workers. So these are the main two groups that we identified. 
And then the narratives. Um, so this marine life disaster is one example for a social movement that actually combined different kinds of narratives. So it started as a narrative of local livelihoods, of environment, of um, pollution, but also of foreign companies. How do they behave, conduct themselves in Vietnam? And then it went to broader notions like national identity, corruption, social justice. So this actually combined different notions, also sustainability, for example. And this really mobilized across different groups in society. So we found that to be the case in several different movements that we looked at. And one of the main narratives in recent years is the whole Vietnam-China relation that is very complex and has been used widely both by the state and by society to mobilize and negotiate with the state also. We also found that most protests actually stay peaceful or aim to stay peaceful, and they try to use legal means to voice dissent, especially the ones that had more positive outcomes were the ones that actually try to engage the state without alienating it. But we do see that all of these protests is started online. Like the people first come together online and then it just spiraling out. In nowadays terms, we say that it's go viral. Then once it's go viral and then there's more and more fragments of the society joining and then hence the offline visibility that resulted in protests on the streets, which is very uncommon in Vietnam, actually, because in Vietnam, protest is something for our listeners who are not familiar with Vietnam. Protest is something that Vietnamese people just don't get to do that often. We would like to do it more, but we don't get to do it that often. So I do see that social media plays a very significant role in the protests in Vietnam lately. But using social media to mobilize people to come together for the same cause requires a lot of strategic navigation and all sorts of resources. So this means that some fragments of the society have access and some don't. What can you tell our listeners about the division that social media created in the context of citizenship creating or maintaining in Vietnam? So yeah, as you just mentioned, obviously social media has played an important role and does play an important role in organizing protests and creating visibility through online content, especially using images that were taken during protests and events uh, on the ground. However, we actually argue that social media can increase the fragmentation of society or, as you put it, uh, the division in society. So we think this happens in two ways. So first, there are access barriers like a lack of access to technology, for example, due to financial resources, a language barrier also. So when it comes to discussions and information that is available in English, especially when it includes the diaspora, for example, and also the issue of lack of knowledge of how to use social media, of how to maybe even create an account. And then as is the case for many local people, for farmers, for factory workers, for street vendors, there's also an issue of time, a lack of time. I mean, they are working a lot of hours and maybe do not have time to create online content and take part in discussions. So this is one way in which it creates division or even makes a division that is already there, fragmentation more visible. And the second way uh, in which social media can increase fragmentation, as we put it in our paper, is through the appropriation of grievances. So what we mean by that is that grievances concerning a certain group of society, so for example, the livelihoods of local fishermen in the case of the Formosa protests, are appropriated by young urban middle class to 
further their own agenda, maybe, which uh, might not be the same as the local peoples. So we argue that there can be a disconnect between these very localized issues that are based, you know, in the grounds regarding the environment, for example, and which we also argue are already embedded in a existing discourse and also existing personal networks. And then there's this disconnect between the way these are presented and appropriated in social media. So while a lot of them do start, a lot of protests, protest movements start to gain visibility in online media, we think that they are always grounded in local issues, local discourses, local narratives, which are then translated into online space. And obviously, when talking about cyberspace in Vietnam, there are other limitations that should be mentioned. So in our paper, we drew on the work of Mike Douglas, who has written extensively on civil societies in Asia. And according to him, cyberspace can only be a civic space when it is completely completely autonomous and unregulated. And this is not the case in Vietnam, especially since the new cybersecurity law, which uh, I think was passed in 2018, but came into effect in 2019. Especially since then, the government has extensive powers to monitor information and conduct cybersecurity checks online. As has been the case with other government policies, however, and as we have mentioned before about this, you know, not formalized form of citizenship, maybe there is also a lack of clarity regarding this law. And some people even say there's a lack of implementation because it is not very clear what the exact regulations are, for example. So social media definitely increases the reach or the scope of certain grievances, but it also is characterized by certain issues like the surveillance and also problems of misinformation or what we call fake news. And finally, there's also this issue that social media makes activists, like certain people, very visible. So this can increase support because it personalizes conflict, but it also potentially increases state scrutiny. So we argue that social media is just one of the tools for state society negotiations and that public space and pre-existing local networks still play a very important role in creating visibility and gathering support for social movements in Vietnam. I suppose the research has a lot of depth to it and I'd love to explore more with you both, but our time is limited. So I am going to put out my final question for today. I know this is a little bit on the speculative side, But how do you place Vietnam in the Southeast Asia context in terms of civil society growth, especially after the new cybersecurity law came into effect in 2018? I mean, it's interesting because when I started my studies, civil society in Vietnam was kind of like, is there a civil society in Vietnam? Can we use this term? So I think it's once again a term where we need to look at it from a local context and a Vietnamese context. What does it mean? Like just taking it now and don't go into this discussion. I think generally over the last couple of years, it was not really great for civil society in all the Southeast Asian countries. So for the last five years, maybe we had kind of this democratic reckoning and like something coming up and being very happy the um, elections in Malaysia and in Myanmar. So in most countries, we can observe a turn towards a more restrictive political climate. We have this in Myanmar. We can see this in Thailand, in Malaysia, in Cambodia, the Philippines. And I would say Vietnam is not really an exception here. So, I mean, it didn't really have this democratic opening, but we can see a quite restrictive political framework emerging in recent years or increasing the restrictive policies. This law in 2018-19, we had a lot of 
during, I think, the winter, there was a lot of persecution for political activists, journalists, and so on. So there is a strong political pushback at the moment against every kind of democratic opening against the civil society. For example, we had the land conflict two years ago in Miduk, um, which turned really violent um, between police and local land right activists, which got persecuted then and got very harsh sentences in court because they took the police as hostages. So it was a kind of extreme case. But I think also the answer of the state was kind of extreme and no one really knows what happened there. I also think the current pandemic plays a strong factor in increasing the restrictive environment in Vietnam. On one hand, we have this mentioning of a cooperative citizenship with moral obligations toward the nations, which is often also used to really push down on people who don't cooperate. We have people signing some kind of letters that they take responsibility if they don't get vaccinated and someone else gets infected. So when they are responsible for these infections, for example, so there's kind of risk really pushing down people. Also, we have the lockdowns, which are reducing public space and face-to-face interactions. And all of this increases the pressure when people demand accountability of their rights. There's not much space left. And we can already see some political shifts toward a more conservative economic policy and people are more on a car orientation, more of industrialization, less environmental policies, because there is no space for public protests against these policies. So right now, I would say Vietnam's civil society has quite some challenges to address, and hopefully very soon it will be able to do this. I mean, one interesting point I think we can say is if we go beyond this, okay, civil society against the state, we can see that we saw a lot of public support and social activism towards more social issues in Vietnam in recent years, at least the last year, where people donated to funds for poorer families who had a lot of problems due to corona, giving funds for low-income families. So I think like civil society as a social engagement, which goes beyond this focus on the state, is thriving and it has some opportunities. And there's a lot of this going on, which is great from a community perspective, from a solidarity perspective. And I think this is something we should also look into. And then what I think is interesting, like mostly based on my own interaction with young Vietnamese in recent years, that we have kind of a political awakening in a younger generation, which is often located in cities and which has a very global outlook. They interact with the internet, they travel, they go and study abroad. They often speak English very well. They have a very different outlook at their future and their aspirations and kind of different hopes from previous generations, maybe. And I think they want to engage the government on their own terms. They have their own demands and wishes, which are not necessarily based on what comes from the outside. And they're critical of the government, but at the same time, very proud of the achievements of Vietnam. And I think that's great. Like, they like what Vietnam is doing. They're proud of it, but they're also critical at the same time. So there is a shift in the younger generation in their relationship with the state. We can find similar processes in other countries. When we take this emerging milk tea alliance, this Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, we have this protest movement in Thailand. We have the protest movements in Myanmar, also in Malaysia, which also often rooted in a younger generation. I'm sometimes wondering, I and mean, that is very speculative, is if part of why Vietnam's government is more repressive right now is because it's seeing what's happening in these other countries. There's a more established protest movement and we're kind of afraid that it will come to Vietnam and we want to preemptively close everything down. So generally, civil society is a little bit at a cross right now in its development and what we mean by this not really having much meaning. So I would say we have these two opposing forces in Vietnam right now where you have the state who tries to stabilize its hold on power, its system. And on the other hand, we have an increasingly well-educated global younger generation with its own aspirations. And it, this is not always congruent or doesn't 
always like what the state does. And these two forces or group are struggling with each other. And the state is depending on the civil engagement of these local people, of these younger generation to invest. You can see it also when we engage the diaspora. We want the investment, we want the support, but we're also afraid of these people, which give this younger generation a very unique position on what we do with it in the long term. But it's also putting a big question mark on what's going on next, because who will win out of these two groups? Absolutely wonderful insight. I really, really do appreciate your efforts of diving into such an important and timely topics like this about Vietnam. Thank you both so very much for joining us today. Thank you as well for giving us the opportunity to speak. Our chapter just came out, so we're very excited about it. And yeah, we're very open for feedback and questions and further discussions on this topic. And now for our listeners who want to know more about Miriam and Francisca's research and other updated scholarship about Vietnam, you can find the newly edited book named Vietnam at the Vanguard, New Perspectives Across Time, Space and Community on the Springer website and in the description of this podcast. The chapter from Miriam and Francisca is titled Conflicted Citizenship in Vietnam Between Grassroots Mobilization and State Repression. My name is Ling Phuong Le. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. <laughs>